It is no surprise to me at all that the young teenagers in the refugee camps could have been organized into interhomway chapters in the winter of 1993. Something magical happens to you when you join a group, a feeling I can only describe as freedom. I felt it myself on various soccer teams when I was growing up. I also felt it when I joined the staff of the Hotel Micolines. It is possible to lose oneself in the purpose of the collective effort. We embrace this feeling of being dissolved into something bigger because at our cores, we are lonely. We are trapped inside our own skulls, but we thirst for that unity, that lost wholeness that we imagined we had before we were born. That feeling of warm acceptance we get inside a group is addictive. It is one of the most powerful human urges. And when your individuality is dissolved into the will of the pack, you then become free to act in any way the pack directs. The thought of acting otherwise becomes as abhorrent as death. We fear the group will withdraw its acceptance from us, and we will be cast out, and the love will die. We would do almost anything to keep this from happening. Tyrants understand this. They try to point these groups like spears in the direction that serves their aims. If nobody can find it within themselves to stand outside the group and find the inner strength to say no, then the mass of men will easily commit atrocities for the sake of keeping up personal appearances. The lone man is ridiculed and despised, but he is the only one who can stand between humanity and the abyss. It says dirtbags in the title, we can do what we want. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Мы открылись миру, открылись, отказались от вмешательства в чужие дела, от использования войск за пределами страны. И нам ответили доверием, солидарностью и уважением. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. I make the money, man. I roll the nickels. The game's mine. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back for another episode of the Enlightened Dirtbags podcast. My name is Jonah Condro, and I'm with my co-host, Version 2. Today's episode, we're going to be covering An Ordinary Man, an autobiography by Paul Recessa-Bagina. So some of you might have seen the movie Hotel Rwanda. So that story is based on Paul Recessa-Bagina, and the book came out afterwards to kind of fill in some of the spaces, get yourself a more in-depth telling of it. This is a horribly tragic event in Rwanda, because we're talking about the genocide of 800,000 people in about 100 days. This wasn't a slow burn. This didn't happen over several years. It got kicked off beginning of April 1994, lasted roughly 100 days. The genocide lasted roughly 100 days. The genocide sort of fit into the greater uh, civil war that was occurring in Rwanda at this time. It was kind of the I hate to use these terms, but we are a book podcast. It was kind of the third act in in the Civil War in the mid-90s. And those numbers are staggering, right? Like 800,000 dead in 100 days, 8,000 lives per day, 5 lives per minute. It's 
insanity. And Rwanda is not a huge place either. So this, you know, would have been a killing field, essentially. It's staggering. And so our main character here, Paul Rusesa Bagina, has a he's a hotel manager and he ends up sheltering about 1,300 people. And he even says himself that he stops only about four hours of killing. Yeah, because he does the math, right? When he, he breaks down the math of like how many people died in in the time period of the genocide. And then he says, well, okay, I had this many people in the hotel. So if we, if we kind of look at those two numbers, he's like, I only saved four hours of people, which is a really striking way to describe how many people he saved, right? Considering the risks that he took to do this. Yeah, the, like put himself and his family at risk because they were all there as well. But it really kicks off the theme, right, of an ordinary man. Paul never really considers himself a hero. He's like, I, people have called me a hero for what I've done, but I only saved four hours of killing. But that's 1,300 lives that he saved from a brutal death that would have come. That's something that really hasn't sunk in for me yet. Uh, we mentioned in earlier episodes leading up to this uh, recording that you know we both watched the movie Hotel Rwanda. I believe when we were in high school, right? It was like the social studies thing to do, watch Hotel Rwanda and write an assignment about it and that. So I I definitely knew that this happened. This is a part of African history. Definitely remember, you know, reading about the horrible uh, murders, you know, the acts of genocide with really inexpensive machetes. Like, it's not like, you know, the uh, aggressors were running around with, bullets and gas and that sort of thing like it was just really face-to-face -face sort of killing right and it's i think for me part of the problem is it happened so quickly so many people died it was so brutal that i'd re I, it's just difficult to understand it's difficult to process and understand that so it hasn't really even after re reading this book watching the movie again here recently it hasn't really sunk in that you know this is kind of an awful thing to have happened right for sure. And you know what? Actually, there's a scene in the movie that kind of summarizes it in a way where Joaquin Phoenix, as a journalist, uh, says, if people see this footage, they'll say, oh, my God, that's horrible. And they'll go on eating their dinners like it really does. The reality of it does not sink in uh, the, the way it's presented to us in a movie. And to be honest with you, like the movie really did cover the violence quite well, but it's the reality is almost too dark to put in a Hollywood film. Like there's a couple of scenes that they just elude to the violence and to the gore and you kind of get an idea of it. But the book, it puts it right out there in front of your face and, and it's, it's unsettling at times. Like, I think everyone sort of knows what a machete is, right? It's just like a, it's a blade. It's, it's fairly wide and it kind of gets a little bit wider near the tip. Um, it's usually like anywhere from two feet to, three feet long right with just like a small handle it's made for like hacking your way through the bush if, if you're like trying to cut a trail on a bush right that's what you would use it for is hacking through the tree limbs and what have you so the other day like i was in uh an outfitter store and i was buying some fishing tackle and i like went and looked at the machetes just to kind of re-grasp you know what they look like because like i know what they look like i know what they are but when you see one and you see the edge it, it kind of helps cement the brutality that was caused with these cheap, inexpensive weapons that they were using to commit the genocide. 
Yeah, I think they and they were selling them for like fifty cents from China. Like, definitely not even a high quality machete of any sorts. Like, just poor metal, probably not even super sharp. Like, when in terms of murder weapons, it's it's awful to imagine. And we'll get into it more later on. But you can just tell the fear of the people in this book of dying by machete. It's it's terrifying. People are like begging to be shot because. The idea of dying by a machete is it's just so gruesome and the way that they were going about it wasn't even like they were trying to be quick about it you know it was it was a form of torture yeah recessa begina recalls at different times when he's traveling about like how they would purposefully cut off a limb so that the victim would watch themselves being dismembered right they would cut off an arm and then a leg, and so you would kind of, you would see your body parts being piled in front of you as you bled out. A really horrific way to be murdered. Yeah, or like cutting the tendons so you couldn't run away while they <laughs> murdered your family members. Like it was, it really was. There's a few scenes in this book where you're just like, oh, and you know, it made me wonder what happens to all of the people after this when things go back to quote unquote normal. Like how someone that's been exposed on either side, you know, victim or aggressor, how do you ever go back to normalcy after you've been exposed to that sort of violence? Like we see it with soldiers and you're talking about gunfire there and they come home traumatized and have a really hard time, you know, blending back into society. But you're talking about people that have macheted hundreds and thousands of people and neighbors, sometimes even family members. And it's all over this you know honestly it's a minute detail like they talk so much about how the idea of tutsis and the hutus which is the two the two groups that the civil war was between and they talk about the differences being so minor like it was almost kind of fabricated by the belgians and the english long ago as a way to divide the people and then it just became you know this personal identity they had identity cards that would say whether you're Tutsi or Hutu. And the craziest part about it is that it's not even actually entirely about your bloodline because it's only passed down by your father. So Paul Recessa himself has a Hutu father and a Tutsi mother. And so even though his parents are mixed, he's Hutu because it only comes from the father. And he had a friend as a child who had a Tutsi father and a Hutu mother and he was Tutsi, so he's on the complete opposite side of things, just because of which one your father is and which one your mother is. So Paul, in the early chapters of the book, he's giving us some of the background, some of the, some of the things that sort of led up to the Civil War, and more specifically the genocide. And when it comes to Rwanda's colonial past, uh, he calls it like an invented history, right? where the uh, the colonial authorities and then even like the Rwandan authorities, they used an invented history and the classic divide and conquer to sort of separate two arbitrary ethnic identities into, I guess, uh, enemies, I guess, or belligerents of one another, right? And that's where you get like the Hutu and Tutsi. And even in the film, there's uh, Joaquin Phoenix's journalist character there. He asks like, two women up, uh, two African women at the bar. He's like, are you Hutu or Tutsi? Right. And then he says like, they could be twins because you like, there's 
there's no way to tell them apart because it's it's really just an arbitrary ethnic division, right? It's it, it really doesn't matter. It's not really like a true ethnic past, I guess, like you were saying. Yeah, and he mentions that the Belgians, one way they would tell people apart is they would go around measuring the width of people's noses and they would categorize them into two groups based on slender noses or wide noses. Like, it's it's entirely made up by early explorers and just pushing their own agenda, right? And early on, the Tutsis kind of get a, a leg up, I guess. They kind of become closer to the Belgians because I believe the country was basically just given to Belgium at one point when they divided up the area after one of the world wars. And the, the group that had been categorized as Tutsi and kind of self-identified as that now got closer to the Belgians. And so it, it just, it's a nonsense division, but it created such a divide for this power struggle. Right. And you just see this flip flop of whoever has the power abuses the power and it just flip flops back and forth. And Paul actually gets, his first taste of this when he's a child with uh, the Hutu uh, revolution, I believe it was called. And he's, you know, it's in 1959. So he's like five years old and he first sees this with his father sheltering Tutsi people at their home out in the hills. And it's kind of the first time he gets to see this division and tries to wrap his head around what exactly is happening and why. Well, there's even a moment in Paul's childhood where, I don't think it was in the 50s. It might have been uh, in the 70s where there was another sort of civil unrest. Um, he refers to these dates of like beads on their historical necklace, right? Like all these horrific events. And it, it, this isn't just like an isolated event in the 90s. Like this is kind of unfortunately part of Rwanda's history. Uh, but there was like a classmate of his that he used to, you know, hang out with and go to school with. And there was, you know, at one point all the Tutsi children were like kicked out of school. And Paul's friend who you know, had a Tootsie father was considered Tootsie, had to leave school, right? It was, you know, that was sort of like the, one of the moments where he's like, oh, like, this is how this impacts my life and my friend's lives. And he was seeing it happen. Yeah. And he mentions that they had a list of names up on the wall and the, and the kids even took part, you know, it was like this opportunity for them to seize some power and they would line up and not let the Tootsie kids in, even though they had just recently been their friends. But yeah. it just goes to show how quickly people would jump on this bandwagon of sorts as soon as they're like, oh, you're better than this group. And, you you know, their parents might have experienced some of this hatred previously, but these kids wouldn't have had any experience with it yet. And so it's not a personal vendetta for them, but they jump on it so quickly because there's an opportunity to have power over someone. And he mentions in the book a couple of times, actually, that that uh, Rwandans have a pretty high respect for authority, you know? So if you have this opportunity to have authority of your own, then everyone jumps on it. Yeah, and I think that's that's something that might serve as a good reminder to us and the people listening to this podcast, like, because a lot of the the civil unrest, the arbitrary sort of ethnic divide, uh, the history and the colonial history attached to the African country, they have a different way of thinking about things. And I'm not saying that that's good or bad or beneath the way that, you know, a Westerner might think about things, but you brought that up when you say like they had a respect for authority. Right. And so sometimes it's difficult when you're reading about or learning about or, um, 
trying to put yourself into a situation like this one that is so foreign, uh, so alien to you, right? That you can't really understand what's going on because you don't really have the ideological background to really understand things, right? And so that's why I appreciate Paul and all of the chapters that he includes in this book to kind of help understand how this broke out, right? Because if you just start at like day one of the genocide, you're like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, how do you just pick up a machete and start hacking up your neighbor, right? Like, how does that, how does that happen so fast? And I, I found myself thinking about this over the last couple of days. It's like, there's got to be something that he's leaving out. There's, there's got to be like some big secret, right? Or there's got to be something like, maybe there was like, you know, they were hopped up on drugs or something like that and doing crystal math. Like I was trying to think of a reason why somebody would just decide to start murdering in the streets, right? Because I don't really have the same ideological background as a Rwandan African. Yeah. And honestly, I think that was my biggest criticism with the movie is that we lose so much of that background. You know, you kind of jump into it and I get it. Like a movie, it's a short format. You can't cover it all. But I think the one thing I really appreciate about this book over everything is how much of the rich cultural history Paul gives us and talking about his dad's experiences with, with previous civil unrest. And he gives us a lot of background on how this division came to be, but still, you know, like you said, it's so hard to make sense of it. And it's a, it's a similar theme to what we saw with Runaway Devil, right? Is you're like, there has to be something else. There has to be something we don't know that could bring someone to such unimaginable violence. But again, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a poor country and people are struggling. And when you have a racial divide like that in the middle of poverty and struggle and people suddenly have some way to lash out on against something, there's an enemy. Now you have somewhere to put your frustration and your anger. It unfortunately just spirals. And we see it a lot of times that it, it, the, the whole genocide really feeds off of mob mentality. People will have an altercation person to person, one-on-one, and it won't, won't go to the same extent of violence as it will when there's a group. People almost without that backing of everyone else that's angry and violent and swinging machetes around, they kind of falter, you know, like, cause it really hasn't affected them that personally to the extent that that would push someone to this, this, this distance. Right. And, and Paul does a really good job of exploiting that quite a few different times. One of my, I guess, sort of premature criticisms I had of Paul as I was reading this book, cause I definitely didn't have this criticism uh, after I was finished, because the, the book is called An Ordinary Man, right? And so, and we, we already sort of touched on it, how Paul doesn't really see himself as a hero when you kind of look at the numbers, right? Like I only say, you know, 1,300 people out of like 800,000. However, he's given us his backstory, and I think it's important to consider, like it doesn't really sound like he was really, he didn't come from like a wealthy family. He did end up going, uh, I think he had like some training and did some schooling uh, out of the country before he actually, and sort of worked up the ranks uh, to become the hotel manager, right? But it's not like he just, you know, he had like a, a like a master's degree, like Amaryllis Fox or anything like that. Like, I think once you sort of read the book from front to back, and even though that Paul seems to have... Uh, have led a pretty good life up until the moment that the uh, genocide breaks out. 
but it seems like anyone could have been in his position. Like it doesn't seem like there was any sort of uh, big favors that he would have used to get to where he was. Like, I think, I think when you think of like who he was and how he describes his childhood and then become an adult and sort of his family life, uh, I think that an ordinary man is a very apt description for himself that he gives himself. Right. Cause I don't like, it doesn't seem like he has anything that nobody else would have access to, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. He definitely didn't have a privileged upbringing by any means. I don't think either of his parents could read or write. But the one thing that really did benefit him is that his father seemed to be a very intelligent man. You know, despite not being able to read or write, you know, he always had these little proverbs and stuff that he would that he would tell. And his father was in a respected position kind of within their little group. And he got to see the way people can be handled with words, you know, like no violence, no weapons, the way a conversation can be manipulated and the way you can find the soft spot within someone. I think he says, even in a a dangerous person, you can find the soft spot and exploit it in a way. And he kind of just takes that example and uses it over and over within this genocide. But like, just like you said, you know, there's, there's nothing, Nothing he was given that was an extra tool that most people wouldn't have. I think he, he he really was just an ordinary man, but an extraordinarily kind person, if the book is telling the true story. There's a Kinyarwanda word, uh, Gakaka, which translates to justice on the grass. And that's what Paul's father... So if there was like a dispute between like a couple of the uh, commune villagers, he would call them... Like if somebody stole a goat or someone was planting it a little too far into somebody else's land, you know, they would just kind of all come together and everyone would sort of air their side. And then it was usually Paul's father because he seemed to have like this, this, um, I guess, higher level of respected authority in these, you know, small groups, villages that he would sort of decide how it was going to be mediated or fixed or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, and in that Gakaka, you see, a stark contrast to the violence we see in the book. Like, it's really interesting the way, you know, once it was decided kind of who was in the right and who was wrong, they would sit the two down together and they would share a homemade banana beer as a sign of like, you know, you've come together again. It's, it's a sign of a symbol of community and everyone would get over it. There was no grudges held after that, which is so wild to see within the small groups within Rwanda. And then on a grand scale, it's the complete opposite. There was no communication between the two, no acknowledgement that, you know, this is, it's just a fake division created by explorers in, you know, the English explorers and, and Belgians that just shouldn't have had this kind of meaning. And they could have probably sat down and talked this out and, and it wouldn't have gone this far, but it, it had just built up so much hatred for so long that there was, there was no reaching that point. So there's a lot of history here. And I think we've said many times, like, this is not something that just, you know, it's not a black and white situation, right? There is a, there's a lot of dense history to here to unpack. And we're certainly not going to be able to do all of that. And of course, the book isn't capable of doing all of that too, right? All of the, all sort of like the required history leading up to this point. But one thing that I, I do think that is pertinent and something that I wanted to share is 
for the purposes of this book, there was, I guess, three, three armies, I guess you'd call them, three sort of aggressors. And so one was the Rwanda Armed Forces. And so that would have been the military with the, with the power structure sort of before the genocide. And then there's the Rwandan Patriotic Force. And so they were, they were considered the rebels, the Tutsi rebels that were invading Rwanda and, and slowly advancing, I guess, in simplified terms from east to west. And then there was the, the armed militia. And so these were, these were usually the, the people that were using the machetes, right? And they, they weren't like a formal army. They were, you know, <laughs> they, these, I guess, these, these, these were the bad guys, the inter-Hamway. Uh, Kind of radicalized young men, really. Yeah, and uh, the, well, this is a, a terrible sort of trans, terrible in that it's horrific what it means. But inter Hamway is what they called the 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 militia, and it loosely translates to to work together. So that's kind of like a nice thing to say, like, oh, we're all working together, right? But when you're leading and engaging with a genocide, uh, it's it's actually quite horrific. And one of the things that stoked uh, the fires of this genocide was the RTLM radio station, right? Which is where a lot of the propaganda uh, came out. And so they would use coded language like, uh, you know, Hutus, do your work. And that was code for kill a Tutsi with a machete, right? Or cut down the tall trees. And that was also code for kill, kill your Tutsi neighbors, right? So they used this coded language. And it's very quite horrific when what they were saying and then also the meaning of the name of the militia. And it's just, it's so fucking awful. (laughs) Yeah. And that radio station really like fueled the whole fire and it kind of just started off as like making political jabs and just got more and more aggressive and everybody was tuning into it. And the crazy part is they were getting their power from the president's house like they had this political like their, li- their literal electrical power was yes. like coming from his house <laughs> yeah ran right from his house and then this is kind of where we get a weird twist there's a couple spots in here where things weren't able to be verified right like after the genocide rwanda kind of descends into chaos obviously a less violent chaos perhaps but there's just no structure left and so many people were evacuated or had fleed or were murdered and there's no leadership and so trying to get the facts straight after the fact was it would be pretty tough and so one of the main catalysts for this whole event was on april 6th uh, in 1994 the plane of president habira mina was shot down which kind of kicked off the massacre and of course, one side is saying like, oh, it's the, you know, the RPF, the Tutsi rebels shot down his plane. And then the other side is saying, well, no, this is a false flag of sorts, right? It was kind of their way to say, you know, here we are, like, this is our reason for really kicking off the genocide. So maybe it doesn't look like as much of a genocide. It looks like a war, like it's a response to the assassination of the president. And they even mentioned that he had signed, Habir Amana had signed a peace treaty that was kind of an idea to, to bring the RPF together with the Hutu leadership. And right after that is when he's shot down. So he kind of loses favor with the militias and, and the, the powers that be because 
again, they respect authority, and he kind of loses the sense of his authority when he signs this peace treaty. Because we never find out who shot the the plane, even to this day. If you just look up Rwanda genocide nineteen ninety four, and you read the Wikipedia page, right, and and some of the like the top articles on Google, like it just it says like even to this day, no one knows who shot down the plane, right? And of course, you kind of want to put on your tin hat, right, and be like, well, maybe it was you know some foreign actor or uh, another foreign government or something like that. Like it would be pretty easy to say, oh, the CIA did it, right? Uh, but Paul, <laughs> right? But always, the, it's yeah. the CIA. If we don't know, it was definitely the CIA. That's definitely going to be a theme in this season. You know, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. Maybe it is. I don't know. Um, we'll see how I feel later on in this episode. But but even Paul says, like, Rwanda doesn't really have that many natural resources, right? It's not like they got big oil fields. It's not like they got these, you know, great big mines with uh, precious metals and, and, and that sort of thing. He throws out that idea early on. So not knowing who shot down the president's plane frustrated me too because it having if we would have known if it was a person or a group, right, even if it was, you know, a foreign government that was sort of meddling in the affairs of Rwanda. And keep in mind, it wasn't just the president of Rwanda. There was other, you know, political figures on this plane that went down too. Uh, I think one was from like Uganda. And then there was, I think there was a, another one from... Uh, the country just south of Rwanda, and I can't think of the name right now. Anyways, but because we don't know, it even further frustrates me because I like it would be easier, I guess, to uh, begin to understand the the genocide or the makings of the genocide or events leading up to that had we known like who did it, right? But we don't, so you're just kind of like, well, okay, I guess it it just sort of it happened. Yeah, and you can see a reasoning behind either. You know, you could understand why the Tutsis would shoot down the plane of a Hutu president. Or you could see why the militiamen trying to ignite a revolution would shoot it down as a false flag. And also after the peace treaty, like you've riled up all of these young men and radicalized them with this idea of starting this this genocide. And then the president goes and signs a peace treaty. And it's like, well, what now? You know, you can see it on both sides. And I think the one thing that uh, really eliminates the idea of it being third party is, is like you had said, you know, there's a mention of Rwanda has no resources. And when the genocide kicks off, you know, it's not like we've seen in other places where these other countries are rushing in to be a part of it in some way. Like everyone backed off. There was, there was none of these countries that really played a big role at all. It's almost like they wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, American media tiptoed and the political figures tiptoed around the word genocide because they knew if they used it, the UN could possibly force them into doing something. They'd be obligated to do something legally and morally. And they just tried as hard as they could. There's some interviews out there that are super uncomfortable of just watching, you know, some political figure trying to avoid that word at all costs. And they would say, you know, there may have been some acts of genocide. It's hard to say. And one of the interviewers says, well, how many acts of genocide does it take before you call it a genocide and they're like oh well we don't have all the figures right now and uh you know we can't say for sure what's what it'll take it'll take uh you know lots of time in 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 research before we can really categorize it and it's like man how many people have to die by machete and if you listen you know like we said the the rtlm radio is just broadcasting 
racial violence over the radio to the point that they would read out people's addresses. And if the people got there and and the victim had fleed, they would broadcast the direction that they were going so that they could be chased down like dogs. They had lists of people and they would just go door to door. And if you were found to be sheltering Tutsi people or even if you weren't on their side 100%, if you weren't willing to pick up a machete, you were likely to be murdered yourself just for being a sympathizer. You know, it feels a lot like what the Nazis had done. You know, you're with us or or you die. I guess it's helpful to say that uh, Paul wasn't the top dog manager at the Hotel uh, Mikulin, which translates to like Thousand Hills. The, the Hotel of a Thousand Hills, I think, is how it trans out. Uh, he did work at the Mikulin uh, earlier in his career, but then he became the manager of another hotel called The Diplomat. And so when the genocide broke out, he ends up at the Mikulin with his family. And then there's still in the, in the early days of the genocide, there's still quite a, quite a bit of foreign nationals, quite still quite a bit of white people that are in the country. And then I, I believe that one of them uh, was a Belgian. I think the manager was a Belgian and he gets like the fuck out of there early on in the genocide. And Paul actually has to uh, get a faxed letter from the Sabina corporation. They own the hotel to say like he's in charge because the staff like you, you know they're not going home because there is some safety in this hotel it was sort of it was seen as a the hotel was seen as a, uh as a meeting ground as like an important place right it was not necessarily sacred but a lot of the like political figures in that met at the Mikulin to sort of like talk business right so it wasn't uh, an initial target i guess in the early days of the genocide and so that's how paul sort of like that's how Paul, I guess, gets his role in in the genocide is, you know, he's trying to maintain some semblance of order and still trying to manage this hotel as best that he can, right? He doesn't immediately turn it into, like, a refugee camp and start, you know, telling people to, hey, hey we're, we're open, like, come hide in here. Like, he's still trying to run it as a hotel when the genocide breaks out. And you see, and Paul describes, like, you know, the steps that happen to when it basically becomes, you know, a refugee, a refugee camp, um, in the midst of this genocide. Yeah. That kind of happens by chance, right? People just start flooding there. And I think it has something to do with, and to your point that it's kind of seen as an international hub. And there's this understanding among the militia, almost unspoken, I guess, that they have to avoid as much international turmoil as they can because then the forces come in you know then these third-party countries come in and get involved whereas they're trying to keep it specifically rwandan so you know if you storm this hotel and murder a bunch of people at this hotel that the sabina corporation owns especially when there's foreign nationals there then the other countries are definitely going to get involved so people kind of just start flocking there and he just has this policy where he's not going to turn anyone away and like you said he keeps trying as hard as he can to run it like a hotel you know part of as his duty and part of as as you have to keep up the appearance right he sees all of these other places churches and schools and everywhere that had been sacred ground of sorts and then they kind of lost their meaning in the chaos and it's just a massacre there and so he kind of thinks if you can keep up this appearance of this being a working and functioning hotel then it's not just you know another place 
to ransack and murder through it's somewhere that has some respectability and that the third world country or the third party countries aren't going to to accept you attacking paul received a lot of criticism from this but he had dealings uh with two very important men so there was uh the vice president of the interhamway the militia george's rutaganda paul actually got supplies for the hotel through him so he's Vice president of, of a militia. Uh, and I believe it was mostly like beer and toilet paper that he got, right? So he used to make pickups from from wherever this guy was had had the supplies, right? And the other important person that Paul had sort of direct ties with was the chief of staff of the Rwanda uh, armed forces. So that was like the, the Hutu army, right? Uh, that was Augustin Busy Mungu, the chief of staff. And so... These men would often, I, I don't know about the, the leader of the, or the vice president of the Interhamway, uh, but uh, Buzumungu definitely came and had drinks with Paul at the poolside of the Mikulin, right? So not only is Paul, he knows that he has to keep up, you know, the appearance of a working hotel, but he also had dealings with these men and he received some criticism for him. But, you know, to his argument was like, well, I had a hotel to run. There's a there's a German phrase that that he quotes, and it's uh, "Dienst is Dienst and Schnapps is Schnapps," which means like business is business and booze is booze, right? And so he talks about having compartmentalized mindset, whereas you know if he was dealing with the Interhamway and getting beer and toilet paper or whatever else, you know, it was in the nature of hotel business, right? He he wasn't he didn't have a personal relationship with these men, and same thing with the with the, the Rwandan army, right? You know, like whether he's handing out favors or giving out cigars or scotch or that sort of thing. Like he definitely had a, a business mindset, right? He wasn't trying to be friends and invite these guys out for cookouts, so to speak. Right. And I think that definitely helped shield the Mikulin in the early days of the genocide when Paul was sheltering people. Cause like they, they knew that Paul still had not necessarily leverage, but he still had resources that, uh, these two groups could could exploit, right? Whether it was Paul giving them bribes or giving them booze or or what have you. And to his credit, there's multiple times in this story where his connection to those people saves a lot of lives. You know, he has something, mostly money and expensive liquor, that they want, and he's able to, you know, people come to the doors ready to start killing, and he's like, "Come on, come here, like I've got, I've got a scotch. Sit down, let's have a conversation." And he's like, "I can give you this money, or I can give you these drinks, and and you know, you can come back later, and we'll, you know, we'll just put this off and put this off." And and he's able to leverage what he has and leverage this small connection. And he even says, as far as uh, George's Rutaganda is concerned, that they knew each other previously. And they actually had some personal conversations about what was happening. And he had told him that he doesn't agree with it. And he had even said, look, I, like, I know you're kind of running this militia, but I, I need you to help me make sure they don't, they don't come kick the doors in here because it would be very bad for me. Not directly telling him, like, look, we're sheltering a bunch of Tutsis, but implying it. And it's hard to say what that did for him, whether that's part of why the hotel stayed standing but it does seem like they were kind of held at bay a little bit as far as the militia is concerned, you know? And with the Hutu armed forces as well, he's able to to get some, like, police officers and, and whatnot stationed at his hotel to help, even though 
there's cases where police officers are also taking part in the genocide. It's really strange, but somehow through conversation and through exchanges, he's able to keep some level of support from these men that, you know, both ended up in prison for life essentially after this for war crimes. And I found one thing I really appreciated about Paul and his writing is he was extremely fair in most cases, you know, he talks about with George Rutaganda and specifically he goes, you know, he's a hard man and he's a dangerous man, but he goes, it, it's never unanimous for a person. You know, they're never entirely a dangerous person. He's like, everyone has a soft spot somewhere. And if you can find it through conversation, you know, he talks about words being a better weapon than anything else. And if you can find this soft spot and appeal to it in some way, especially if you can get them aside, get them aside from the the mobs and the and the killing and you can find some place where really they're not that attached to it you know there's been interviews with some of the killers from prison later on and they talk about how they were mostly just killing as a job you know once the intensity and the flame of hatred had gone away they're just doing it because it's kind of their job now so if you can find that place within someone where they're like I don't really want to come storm this hotel and kill everyone you can convince them to put it off even sometimes he just had to say like you guys can come back tomorrow you know just just not today take take this beer for your man and you guys can go and deal with this tomorrow and sometimes that would be the end of it you'd never hear from them or you know it was just enough time for him to make some calls and reach out to some you know important figure that he had made a connection with throughout throughout his time at the hotel and find a way to reach out to someone who can reach out to the French because the French had a, had a big backing for the Hutu side of this and maybe get someone to make a phone call or contact a general to make a phone call to just push things back a little longer and buy them some more time. That's right. And Paul, even uh, when he's describing like the, the Mikuline, he makes a comparison to the, the fictional Rick's American Cafe in the film Casablanca because there was there was a lot of dealings that went it was like the golf course right the golf course is where all the business deals are made right and this is where a lot of the politicians a lot of the people in the military uh everyone came sat poolside had a drink and that's where they discussed stuff right and this is where paul he develops a bank of favors i mentioned earlier how he's actually the manager of the diplomats when the genocide breaks out he ends up the mikulene he has to get the fax letter from the sabina corporation that basically puts him in charge well when he's going through the office he finds his black binder and that was worth more than it was really a an invaluable sort of find because it had it was it was like an address book right and he would make notes about these important men what their position was who they were married to what their favorite scotch was yada 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 he had all this information uh, in this black binder. And so when it came to making phone calls and, you know, trying to get stuff delayed, he, he had like this, these, this bank of favors to saved up. And so they was like, well, you know, and it was kind of like, remember that time when I scratched your back? Well, this might be a nice time when maybe you don't come kick down the doors of the hotel. Right. The, the favors, this is really interesting. It's, it's hard to understand because how could giving someone a bottle of scotch or how can, uh, giving someone a free meal or whatever favor that Paul was doing at the hotel before the genocide, before before all the violence broke out, when things were still, quote, normal, right? How does this giving someone a cigar mean that later on when he's able to make a phone call, uh, I believe it's uh, 
actually uh one of the generals like uh they're they've come and they've they've ordered paul to like empty out the hotel you've got like 10 minutes i think they said and then paul hastily makes a few phone calls he's describing in the book and then the order gets called off it's really curious to know how how you can have faith like that seems like a big favor you know like in the middle of a genocide and you're able to make a phone call to someone in the army and go hey you've got this guy he's saying to get everyone in the hotel Hey man, can this not like you got to think of the favor that that Paul gave? But he he really doesn't do the, these big favors, and so I'm gonna go to my degree here a little bit because there was an author, he's an anthropologist. His name's Marcel Mauss. He wrote a book called The Gift, and basically what happened was the more famous anthropologist Levi Strauss came along, took what Marcel Mauss did, and just basically expanded upon it through a magnifying glass on it. And he's he's kind of the guy that got all the fame. But one thing about the gift or the theory of the gift is it's very much like, hey, I'll get you back, right? Like if you gave somebody something, you didn't necessarily need something in return right then and there. They would just get you back down the road, right? And the curious thing about how this worked, and this is kind of getting a little bit academic and I apologize. If you did, like, let's say if you gave somebody, you know, a fish, but the way that this sort of worked and it, it's sort of a weird phenomenon is even if you owed somebody a fish, you might give them a fish and then maybe a little something extra. So it was always sort of compounding. Right. And then maybe like, you know, if you did something for somebody, they would kind of, you know, almost do a double in return. It's sort of like that weird sort of trend where it's like, do you want it or do you want me to give it to the next person for double or however that works? That's sort of how this weird sort of exchange works. Thankfully, like I, I guess I did have that, that little snippet of education that allowed me to understand how favors can be cashed in and be so favorable. And it didn't really surprise me when he was calling in favors and had a lot of success with stopping people at the doors or, you know, getting extra supplies like during the genocide and stuff like that. Um, It's really a powerful uh, form of human exchange, right? Yeah. And especially when you consider, like we had said, sympathizers were being murdered and so if you're the general on the other line and someone is asking you to call off this attack like you run the risk of being seen as a sympathizer because at this point the Mikulin has been has has kind of been seen as this i don't know it, it's a it becomes a target and paul himself becomes a target because people come to understand that he's got tootsies sheltered at this hotel and especially you know the upper class the wealthy and the people of interest so it really does become a target and they're they're eager to get at it and they're trying to figure out a way you know at one point they just fire an rpg through one of the windows randomly at night and they cut off their their power and they're they're cutting off their access to water they're just trying to find a way to get everyone out but it it seems like it it continuously is the case that they won't go in for them you know they've got to draw them out somehow and they try it a bunch of times so when the militia is at the doorstep and you're the one asking them or telling them like, nope, you got to back off. We're, we're going to pull back. Like you really would be running a huge risk of being seen as a sympathizer. So it's a pretty crazy exchange for being like, Hey, I'll give you some money or some beers or some scotch or whatever it is. But I think it really just goes to show, like you had said, the power, the power of doing a favor. It's really highlighted in the film Hotel Rwanda. If you recall, there's sort of, you know, I think they're in the third act 
and it's it's sort of kind of the the crisis moment where Paul convinces Bismungu to take him back to the diplomats because he remembers that there is stuff in the safe, right? And he's having the conversation with the general, and it it that part in the movie did happen in the book. It just sort of like the less obviously the less Hollywood version, but like Paul's like, hey, so. If the if the rebels are like making gains and this war is kind of starting looking like it's starting to turn here a little bit, he's like the outside world's looking at you, man, and he's like you you're the one with four stars, and the general all of a sudden starts to realize or not the general he's uh, Bismungu starts to realize like well you need to tell them that I didn't do all this stuff. He's like then I it's kind of more of like well then I need to live. Yeah, I ain't telling them shit. Yeah, he really does leverage the way history views people. And he mentions that uh, that Rwandans, especially considering their history, you know, how important that is to them. You know, way the way history is going to view them and will they be a bad guy. This didn't really pan out for Bismungu anyways. You know, he still ended up with life in prison. <laughs> but But in the moment, you know, it just goes to show... Paul's incredible skills at at uh, finding the place to put the pressure and uh, and kind of directing someone to do the favor, not even really telling them, but just finding a way for them to come up with the idea that this is what I want to do. And it, it works for him over and over and over again. And I really, truly believe that had it been someone else in charge of that hotel, it might not have gone that way at all. And we see it with the staff, right? He talks about how they have spies in the staff that he has to kind of like you know, from within, how do we keep it from looking like a refugee camp? And it's it's not even that everyone there is on board with it. But, of course, they, they've got to work. And he tells them, like, look, you're here for this or you're not here for this. But he, it's interesting they mention when everyone's getting evacuated at the end, some of them stay behind. And he's like, oh, so it's it's kind of clear to see that, that you were one of the spies because who wants to stay here in the massacre Unless you're on the side of the people doing the killing, you know, as far as evacuations go, this is, you know, it's a bit treacherous here. Like there's a couple of tries at getting the people out and it does not always work as well as you'd like. You know, they had some minor support from the UN and, and, and this is a sensitive topic in here and you can tell Paul gets a bit emotional he doesn't seem like an angry man but this was one of the cases where he definitely expresses some emotion in the book where he mentions you know the minuscule help that they had from the un and how it was almost useless because most of the time the un would get pulled out and anyone that was sheltering at the place that the un had been stationed immediately after the jeeps leave they would be massacred thousands at a time and he tells a story of one of i believe it was a school where everyone had been sheltering. There was 2,000 people sheltered there, and there was like 10 you know, UN soldiers stationed who had been instructed not to fire. You could only fire a fired upon, but if they were killing people in front of you, you're not allowed to do anything about it. So people had flocked here and sheltered about 2,000 people there, and the, the mob was just waiting outside. And when the UN got the order to pull out, the refugees there were begging to be shot in the head so that they wouldn't have to die by machete. Because they knew, they had seen it. You know, there was bodies piled up on the side of the road all over the place. They knew what was coming. And the UN just pulled out and left them there. So his support from them at the hotel, you know, it was, I think he 
he calls it like as thin as a fishing thread or a sewing thread or something like that. Like it's, it's a farce at best. It almost counteracts, you know, the goal of peacekeeping or protecting, right? Cause if you're a UN soldier and you're wearing like the blue helmets, you're just setting up a, a signal for where the refugees are at. You don't need any sort of intelligence to see where people are hiding out because you could just, oh, okay, if there's, you know, a bunch of UN dudes in front of that building, there's probably people inside that they're protecting, right? And so it, it doesn't take anyone very long to figure out. It's like, oh, they're not shooting us. So as long as we don't fuck with those guys, right, they're not going to fuck with us. And so they got to go back to wherever they're going back eventually. And then, like you said, they just go in and they massacre 2,000 people. They kind of rounded up the Tutsis for them. Yeah. You know, save save us the time of going out and hunting. Like, oh, fuck. And then we see they organize a partial evacuation. And Paul is like, I'm not going. I can't go. He's like, I can't leave these people. I have to. I've told them that I'm here. And, you know, if I leave with this group and there's no one here to run the hotel and there's no one here with the contacts that I have that can lever the favors that I have, I'm just leaving these people to die. And so he loads his own family up on this UN transport to get evacuated. And the information, they ask for a list of the people going on the transport. And the information leaks. It gets to the RTLM radio. And they announce over the radio who's on the transport and where's it going. Like, how does the UN fuck it up that bad? <laughs> you have a list of who you're, you're transporting. It just becomes a target list, especially because Paul's family is on there, you know, and his wife is Tutsi. And, you know, as far as the Interhomo is concerned, their kids are, are just as, as much on the target list as anyone else. And so they announce over the radio and he hears it over the radio after the convoy leaves. He hears his whole family's names read out with a kill order to take down the convoy. I could not even begin to imagine how you would be feeling at that moment, especially knowing that he, like he kind of told them to go. Like, he's like, I have to stay with these people. I need you to get out. And now you're like, fuck, like that might be it. They're just marching into a, into a trap. And of course the evacuation fails and they have to turn around and come back to the hotel and everyone's just stuck back where they were. It's so unfortunate because you're like, Oh, finally I'm getting out. Right. Cause I, I believe the people that were being evacuated or attempted to be evacuated by the UN at this moment, I believe they had secured visas, exit visas. And so, you know, if you weren't able to get a visa, you had to stay at the hotel, right? And so this is all the fortunate people that were able to get a visa. Here you're like, okay, I'm getting out of here, right? And then fucking a bunch of fucking, you know, criminals with machetes are like, no, you're not. So it's, it, it's hard to imagine maintaining any sort of level of hope when you're in that situation. You know, you are in stuck in a really nice hotel. Supplies have run out. The water's, you know, been cut off. The electricity's been cut off, right? Uh, They're drinking water out of the pool. You know, Paul even talks about, they did the math, like, okay, the pool's got this much water in it. If we allow people to come down twice a day, that's all your, you know, we might last two months with the water that's in the pool, right? So, yeah, you, you, you know, the early days of the genocide, you are, you know, when the, the scotch and the beer and the cigars are still flowing, but you know, you, you get in there a little bit and 
you know, I can't even imagine what that'd be like. Yeah. And just hearing the chatter on the radio every day, like, you know, you're a target, like, like we had said, you know, they fired an RPG through one of the windows, like at the middle of the night, you know, at any point in time, they could come in and there's nowhere for you to go. Like just run out into the swamps and hope. And people talk about trying to leave. I think one of his friends and, and, and that man's family had tried to talk Paul into leaving with them to go back to their hometown. And I think they got two kilometers down the road and hit a roadblock. Like there's just roadblocks everywhere where they're demanding and there's, you know, there's no getting past it because they have identification cards. You're condemned by your own identification card. And if you don't have one, you're condemned anyways. So it's, it's just, it's stuck between a rock and a machete. Really? (laughs) You know, it's like, I don't mean to joke about it, but they really are just cornered and all you can do is hope. And they put so much faith in Paul and there's a scene, I think it was during the second evacuation attempt, where uh, Paul's family, of course, he has connections, right? So he's one of the families that's able to secure a visa. And a bunch of the refugees come up to him and they say, we need you to let us know if you're going to be leaving on this evacuation. Because with no one else here to protect us, we're all just going to go up to the roof of the hotel and jump. Because once you're gone, we're all going to die by machete. And like... I don't know, man. If you had asked me before reading this book, like, what do you think it's like to die by machete? I would probably say, like, yeah, that sounds like shit. Like, I don't want to do that. But after reading this book, you like, it, the picture is just painted to you of how violent and gruesome it is and how slow they could be about it and, like, making you watch your family members die. And it was such a terrifying idea that people were like, we already know we're going to die. Even Paul says a bunch of times he had just accepted the fact that he's going to die. It was a matter of when and how much he can do in the meantime to help people. And you just know it's coming. And so you're ready to jump from a rooftop. And I've seen pictures of the hotel, man. It's not that high. Like there's a chance it's not going to finish the job. And that's even better than what's coming. It's brutal. I think I'd like to read a passage here. Uh, Since we're talking about the intensity of the violence, I'd just like to read something real quick that really drives the point home in case we haven't already. I dreaded machetes. The interhomway were known to be extremely cruel with the people they chopped apart, first cutting tendons so the victims could not run away, then removing limbs so that a person could see their body coming apart slowly. Family members were often forced to watch, knowing they were next. Their wives and their children were often raped in front of them while this was happening. Priests helped kill their congregations. In some cases, the congregations helped kill their priest. Tutsi wives went to sleep next to their Hutu husbands and woke to find the blade of a machete sawing into their neck and above them the grimacing face of the man who had sworn to love and cherish them for life. And Tutsi wives also killed their husbands. Children threw their grandparents down pit toilets and heaved rocks on top of them until the cries stopped. Unborn babies were sliced from their mother's wombs and tossed about like soccer balls. Severed heads and genitals were on display. The dark lust unleashed in Rwanda went beyond friendships and beyond politics and beyond even hate itself. It had become killing for killing's sake, killing for sport, killing for nothing. It raged on and all around the hotel, on the capital streets and in the communes and in the hills and every little spidery valley. So that's awful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. If that really sums up the violence 
that was inflicted with machete during the genocide, right? And so I'm glad that you wanted to read that, and I'm glad that you you know you shared that on this episode because that re- like if there was a passage that summed up you know awful machete violence, I think that does it. Yeah, and like I'm just as uncomfortable now reading it again as I was when I read it for the book. Like I set the book down after that. I was just like, oh, like in most violence in the world, usually. You know, there's an understanding that, like, women and children, children for sure, are usually spared. And in this case, even unborn children, like, everything they could do, it sounds like a horror movie. You know, it sounds like a slasher movie. It's so gruesome. And, of course, this is why you have to read the book over the movie. The movie, don't get me wrong, the movie's good. And I get why they couldn't put this kind of stuff in there. But... It really won't drive the point home unless you read these things. And I think it's super important that Paul put it in there because it's right around the same time that he's making the point that, you know, the U.S. didn't come to help them. The British didn't come to help them. You know, the Belgians, the U.N., they didn't have the support. The people were tiptoeing around using the word genocide so they weren't forced into helping. And this was just happening day after day, five lives a minute for 100 days all around them. And so I I get where his his anger would come from. And even then, I dude, if I was writing a page on this, it would just be all swearing. Because <laughs> how would you not hate the world after that? Watching that happen every day. Friends, family members, neighbors, you know. He talks about the stains on the side of the road from piles of bodies, even after they were cleaned up. Just red dirt everywhere. And people just went missing, never to be found again. It's so awful, and he needed to drive it home with something like that. As uncomfortable as it is to read, it, his hope, of course, is that it never happens again. And you're not, I think you have, to, you have to show just how dark it was for people to understand. And maybe if it does happen again, people will be willing to do something about it. Because it, this is something that, you know, should have been happening in medieval times. Like, this is, it's absolute barbarism that's beyond the world that we live in now like this was in the 90s and we're having 800,000 people murdered by machete it's unfathomable so I think one last point on this topic that I wanted to touch on he talks about his son Um, before they get to the hotel when they're still in their house and they're sheltering, I think he said 32 people in his house. And he's like talking to militiamen at the door and trying to keep them away. One night, the neighbor, uh, the kid tries to sneak out. His, his son is like 15 or something at this point, right? Roger, I believe his name was. His son tries to sneak out and get across the fence to to check on the neighbor kids and see if they're okay and see what's happening. You know, of course, they told him never to leave. He's 15. He's going to do whatever the fuck he wants. And in the movie, they just show, they find Roger covered in blood. And they're panicking. They're like, oh my God, what happened? Are you okay? And they're like, oh, it's not his blood. And then they just show the kid to be kind of disturbed for the rest of the movie. When in reality, the kid went over the fence to find the neighboring family and there was like eight people chopped up in the yard in a massive pool of blood. Some of them not even completely dead yet and just trying to like crawl around. He mentioned his kid didn't talk for seven days after. Like this is the kind of violence that they were exposed to. And kids of all ages. He talks about how 
I think it was his brother-in-law's kids, you know, his, his, uh, brother-in-law had gone missing and they end up finding, you know, the kids later at a, at a refugee camp behind the RPF lines. And he mentions how grateful he is that they were too young to remember what had happened because it followed them. He talks about, he wakes up screaming in the middle of the night and just sweating. And often they have to sit down together in the middle of the night as a family to talk it out and just express their feelings and just try to get by. Cause this is absolutely something that will never leave you. It's, it's going to travel with you everywhere you go for the rest of your life. It, it makes you wonder about the real aftermath, like not the immediate aftermath, but the fallout of this in the years to come, like the generational fallout from this sort of trauma, right? Because we're looking at 1994, and so there's like another generation of people that are, that are coming up. And so I can't imagine what that, like what sort of reconciliation or you know, the success or the failure of that would have been in the, the latter half of the 90s and into the 2000s, right? Because, you know, like, and even if, you know, even if you were an aggressor, like, how do you walk back from that, right? Like, it's really hard to sort of like, I can't even imagine what that would be like to look at yourself, even if you didn't get put on trial for war crimes, right? If you were just somebody that got, got cut up or that got, pardon me, somebody that got caught up in the the ideology of the RTLM radio stations, right? And then really giving your head a shake and trying to come out of that. Like, that doesn't happen overnight. It's not like you just turn a switch off and be like, okay, well, that's over, you know? Or maybe you do. Like, I don't, I guess after reading An Ordinary Man, there's, it just, the questions really explode because not having known much about the Rwandan genocide before reading this book and then taking a dive into this aspect of African history, I can't imagine what that would have been like for an entire country of people. Yeah, and and interestingly enough, the hunters kind of become the hunted after, right? When the RPF pushes in and takes the the keys the key cities. Uh, they kind of go on a spree of retribution killings and the Hutus that may have taken part, even just by speculation, you know, it goes back to what we always see with these mindless killings. Someone's neighbor can turn someone in and be like, I saw him take part of it and there's no trial, no evidence. That's it. You're just being murdered. So even after the rebel army moved in and, and took the, took the area, the killing just kept going, you know, and it's, it's this, unending history of Rwanda flip-flopping between violence with whoever has the power at the time. And Paul talks about how like they need to break away from that idea if they ever want to if they ever want to go beyond this violence and find a way to come together. And he sounds hopeful, but I don't think he's holding his breath. And I don't know if you have more to discuss on this, but this does kind of lead nicely into our Where's the Author Now? Please do, because I didn't do any research about Where's the Author Now, so this is going to be all new to me. For those of you that listened to the preface episode, you know that where the author is now is jail. He's in prison for terrorism. In this book, you see... Paul talks quite a few times about the failure of of the Hutu leadership. You know, they could have squashed this early. 
you know, and if anything, they supported it. And he talks about failure of leadership throughout the country for a long time. After the RPF pushed into the country, they put in place a leader named uh, Paul Kagame, I believe his name was. And so he's kind of the Tutsi leader now, right? We flip back to the other side. The Tutsis have power again. And one of the things he did he did do immediately, which Paul um, applauds him for, is they got rid of um, the identity cards. And it kind of became frowned upon to, to discuss race at all in Rwanda. Like everyone is just Rwandan and that's it. There's no Hutu, no Tutsi kind of as a way to like say, hey, we're getting rid of that. We're, we're moving forward and we're not going to have this division anymore. But the positives kind of ended there. And it just went back to a regime of power. You know, this guy got voted back in with a 95% or like a 98% um, support rate, which, uh, you know, we live in a democracy. Those numbers are never correct. You know, nobody has 90 some percent ever. It's never going to happen. So he kind of scoffs at the idea of this guy having complete leadership and complete support and he starts criticizing him even in the book he starts criticizing his leadership so when i dove into like you know like we had said in the preface episode like he's he's considered a hero you know he's been on all these talk shows and he has like a foundation set up um, for charity to help people that are part of genocides and all of this how does he end up in prison for terrorism well this is where our conspiracy kind of comes into play. So he was what most people would say is falsely charged by the current leadership. You know, he says himself when when the genocide ended, he became a target because he knew who had taken part. You know, he's still kind of running even after the genocide because he's a witness. He has all these connections. He knew who took part in what and who's to blame and. So he kind of gets targeted a few times after, and he continues his uh, protest of the leadership and of the new leadership and carries that on. Even once he's out, he moves to, I believe he moved to Brussels, and he goes more public with it. And he kind of gets, you know, these death threats and whatever. One day he's flying. I can't remember where he was flying to. Certainly not Rwanda. And he gets on a plane, and the plane fucking flies to Rwanda. And he gets arrested and thrown in prison for, like, political crimes and terrorism. There, you know, the government's trying to say, like, oh, you know, we didn't, like, trick him into coming here or whatever. And then a bunch of people on the plane were like, oh, yeah, everyone on that plane knew we were going to Rwanda except for Paul. Like, we 100% got him on a plane and flew him to somewhere where he knew he'd probably be arrested because the government fucking hates him. So, yeah, now he's, like, basically on trial uh, for terrorism because of his, you know, public disagreements with this government and how they're basically just creating, you know, a dictatorship out of a democratic country. There's not really an idea of what's going to happen yet. They're saying like, oh, no, he's a terrorist. Like he's trying to bring down the government and start a revolution and whatever. And he's like, no, your government's garbage. And you, you trapped me. You flew me here. You know, it's basically a hostage situation. And I guess... You know, as far as the UN and stuff is concerned, they basically said, like, mm, well, they might have tricked him into going there, but they didn't kidnap him. So we're out, <laughs> you know, like we're not really getting involved. You know, it's it's there's this weird fine line. It's the genocide thing all over again where they're like, well, you know, it's not a kidnapping. It's not. But that's the thing is 
extradition has happened to Rwanda multiple times in, you know, French countries and wherever else. They've always gone through the legal channels. Apparently, this is like basically the first time that they didn't apply for this to have him sent over legally. This is like the only time they've ever tricked someone into flying to a new country. They absolutely broke laws in doing this. And they're still all the other governments are kind of like, yeah, but they didn't like there was no bag over his head. That's kind of where we draw the line. You know, he got on the plane willingly. He didn't know where the fuck it was going, but he got on the plane, you know, lying to him and flying him to somewhere where he can get arrested. You know, it's frowned upon, but uh, it's not illegal enough. So he might die in prison, dude. Like this sounds like one of those, you know, suspicious circumstances kind of thing. You know, it's John McAfee all over again. And we'll see how it goes, but it's not looking good for him. We've seen it before with these corrupt governments. When they throw someone in jail, usually it's they disappear or it's a suicide, you know? Man, that's wild. Um, I'm glad that I didn't look up any of that prior to this episode because I'm sitting here listening to you recount what's happening to Paul now. Like, this isn't something that happened 10 years ago, right? Like, this is happening right now. It is incredibly unfortunate because part of my way, and I imagine a lot of people think this way, is like you just want to think of someone as the bad guy and you want to think of someone as the good guy, right? You know, just like World War II, the Nazis were the bad guys and everyone from the West was the good guys, right? Even though in that conversation, there's there's a lot to unpack there, right? But even though the genocide stopped, and the RPF took power and, you know, they got a titsy government, right? Government now. Um, it doesn't really sound like it's not as simple as like, wow, well, okay, Rwanda is going to be okay, right? It, you know, and that's, that's super unfortunate. But on the flip, you know, trying to find a silver lining in this story in Paul's life up Good until luck. Well, well, yeah, it, <laughs> at least it opens up that conversation again. Mind you, I wasn't really keeping an eye out for African politics and African news, right? Especially Rwanda. Like, oh, time to turn on the Rwandan BBC and see what's going on, right? No, like nothing yeah, like that. I, it doesn't pop up on my news feed often. At least that, you know, this conversation about, you know, what happened in Rwanda in 94 and the generational fallout and trauma from the genocide, right? if there's a bit of a silver lining, if you'll grant me that much, like maybe that'll be enough to really to open up our eyes to that again. But on the flip side, there is some hints that, you know, maybe, maybe Paul isn't necessarily lying to us, but I don't think I quite understand where his allegiances are. I think during the genocide, I think he'd like made choices like, no, I'm going to save these people going to survive that sort of thing. And I don't know if it's with sarcasm or whatnot, but in the la latter chapters, when he's talking about the vice president of the Interhamway, he calls him like my friend George's, right? And this is part of the criticism that Paul receives is because he, you know, he kept sort of, quote, business ties with this guy. Maybe there's a little bit of truth in, in the trumped up charges that, you know, the government uh, laid on Paul today, right? You know, and in in, I say today, what I mean is like, you know, now what's going on now recently so i don't know like it's just all it does is it just throws up more questions right there's no there's no really easy sort of way of understanding what's going on yeah and i couldn't imagine how he's feeling right now like the only thing that's going to save him there is some sort of international support and 
we know how that went last time that he needed international support. You know, the UN failed him. And I think that's the only thing that's going to save his life right now. I was like, dude, it made me want to start a petition. You know, I was like, let's put something behind this. Like if we had, you know, Joe Rogan level followers right now, (laughs) I'd be like, you know, everybody start, you know, writing your, your political members and saying like, we got to do something for this guy. But again, like you said, you never know. You really never know. Like maybe he did get radicalized in his own way. But from what I understand, you know, as far as allegiances go, it sounded to me from my reading that his allegiance is just to Rwanda, you know, and Rwanda absent of politics, you know, like it's not about who's in charge. It's about what the leader is doing. I don't think he cares if it's a Hutu or a Tutsi leader. I think he just wants someone that's going to help put the country back together because he's so afraid of this happening again and again and again. And he even says, he's like, there's no way that genocide isn't going to happen. But he's like, there has to be a way to break the cycle. You know, we can't just go back and forth. Oh, Hutus are in power. They're going to slaughter Tutsis. Tutsis are in power. They're going to slaughter Hutus. There has to be a way to break it. And I think there was a sliver of hope with Paul Kagame when they got rid of the identity cards. But it sounds like now it's just, again, it's another man in power that's abusing it and is probably going to stay there because they can't get him out, you know, until there's another revolution. And there's got to be a better way. Well, yeah. I don't have an answer for that, you know. Um, it's easy to say from Canada, right? Yeah. You know, the, all these books that we read, man, they just make me so thankful for living in Canada. It's something we really don't have to deal with here. Like, our political troubles are, you know, so minor compared to what they're dealing with there. And it's it makes it almost hard to believe what's happening and it makes me wish there's more i could do and maybe there is you know maybe i could start a petition or something but who knows what the truth really is and and what power we might have i i hope he gets out you know i from reading this book i i really like paul like i said i found his writing to be extremely fair even with some of the most violent people that he came across he would always look at you know yes like this person is taking parts in these massacres but that's not their identity. You know, they helped us out in these other cases and we need to remember that no one is exclusively evil. There's, there's a good inside everyone, you know, varying levels. Uh, it's definitely a spectrum, but no one is 100% absolute evil. And I, I think he's got a good outlook on humanity and, and I, I wish the best for him. I would be pretty bummed to see, you know, something in the news about Paul Rwanda, your Paul, um, Recessa Bagina committed suicide in a Rwandan prison. Like, because we all know. Then we definitely know the CIA was involved. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, you want to dive into a rating here? Yeah, I think I'm going to be hard on this book. I'm going to give it an 89. Uh, you know, I don't know who this book is for. You know, I don't know... Uh, and uh, I say that because, like, not that I, I don't know who I'd recommend this book to, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Because there's other books you read and you'd be like, hey, like, I know that, you know, this person or maybe this person might know, like, someone else who might benefit or enjoy reading this book, right, for whatever their interests lie. But I don't really know, I don't know who I'd hand this book to. And that's that's impacting my my rating. I don't think, you know, an 89... 
uh, octane rating. Uh, it's not because it's not written well. Like it's it's written really well, and I agree with you. I think Paul is very fair when he's recounting the events of the genocide and what goes what happens in the Hotel de Micheline. But my I, I guess my rating is is a little bit low on this book because I don't know who I would want to share this book with. You know, I hope you listen to this podcast. Maybe you watch the film. Maybe you read the book again. Uh, if anything, I think that this book is sort of a lesson in soft power in in what you can do, which is favors and being able to read somebody and just not write them off completely. Like you were saying, like like how Paul believes like no one is just evil or just good. It's like a spectrum, like you were saying. And and I guess if you read that book, if you read the if you read Paul's book, sort of as a lesson in how you can leverage favors and leverage politeness and leverage words to get better outcomes, then I think this would be like a fantastic read. But keep in mind, like the passage that you shared in the middle of this episode, it's difficult to read. And you know, I didn't really. And I guess with that, just to finish off my rating here. I did not look forward to reading this book, not because it was poorly written, right? But because it was difficult to, you know, reading about machete violence. Man, I went a different route than you for sure. <laughs> um, I'm I'm gonna give it a ninety four. Oh, honestly, like wow. I, but I'm the kind of psychopath that'll like recommend these kind of books to everyone. You know, I'm like. You do yourself a disservice and suffer through this with me, you know, like, I don't know, like I've always been obsessed with like World War II books and stuff like that and the concentration camps and like one of my favorite books that I've ever read is Beneath a Scarlet Sky and it's all just focused around um, a young, like a 17 year old Italian boy during World War II and, and the, and what he witnesses, the atrocities that he witnesses and I always try to get people to read those books like they're dark and they're hard to read but i i think they're so important man and I, i'm gonna add this book to that list because you know we all get caught up on such dumb shit all the time especially here in north america like sometimes i see people marching in the streets or you know starting a instagram fucking petition about something and i'm like dude who cares like this is really like, why is this what we're up in arms about? You know, like Facebook is stealing our data. It's like, yeah, you read the terms of agreement. You scrolled through the terms of agreement and clicked, yeah, accept, do whatever you want with my data, and off we go. And people are, like, outraged about it. It's like you have no idea the problems that people have experienced and are experiencing currently. And if you read some of the books about it, it might put into perspective, like, just how fantastic our lives are here. And... I think it's so important for people to read these books. And so I think Paul did a great job. Like the the rich cultural background that he gives us in the early pages of the book and then just like hammers home in the second half of the book just how awful this experience was and what people had to go through. Like this is definitely my kind of book, which, you know, might make me a little bit crazy because like we had said, like I read this book and I felt awful. I felt awful. I had to set it down a couple times because you're just like, oh my God, that's so terrible. And if this was, 
you know, if this was a work of fiction, I probably wouldn't have finished reading it. I'd be like, I don't need to do this to myself, you know, but there's some part of me that's like, you know, solidarity. Like if they went through it, I will read about it and I will, you know, in some minuscule way, I will experience it with them, you know, and and I think, you know, history is so important to express and to remember, you know, and and putting it down into words and putting it in a book to me is one of the most important things that we can do so that we can always remember what happened and look at it and remind ourselves like these are paths we've been down before and things that we need to avoid doing again. And we'll never be able to feel it to the true extent that they did, but God damn, did I feel something, man? Like it was so disturbing to read. And I felt so bad for the people caught up in this senseless violence that brewed from some, you know, ridiculous division created by people from another country like a century ago. And it just spirals into this massacre. And I'm like, there's got to be something we can do to keep this from happening again. But this has been happening over and over through history. And here we are in the 90s doing it again. And like Paul said, it's. He's like, it'll probably happen again before the decade is over. You know, like, oh, it's so grim. But I think everybody needs to re- read it to remind themselves that, like, we got to look outside of our own little box and look at what's happening around the world and, and maybe do what we can to change to change that. And even if all we're doing is just like, you know, hey, man, don't hate people for something small, you know, because that hate boils up and becomes something way bigger just day to day, you know, maybe just try to be nicer to people or something, whatever little thing you can do to just not spread hate in the world, I think is super important. And these books are are the best tool we have to remind ourselves. And so to me, I think Paul nailed it. You know, he, he never expresses a, a disrespect for Rwanda and the Rwandan people. Like he clearly, he loves them. The place means a lot to him. And he just, he, paints their flaws almost in a a hopeful way like in a way he doesn't want us to hate anyone he doesn't want us to hate the people that you know committed acts of violence in the genocide he just wants us to learn from it and so to me i'm like fuck yeah 100 percent. everybody read this goddamn book learn a lesson and you know just don't be an asshole and stop fucking selling machetes to people that don't need them <laughs> i don't know that's my rant i'm done i'm over with it I get I get super heated about this stuff, even though like, you know, I'm no Mother Teresa, man. I haven't saved anybody, but this kind of thing just gets me like all amped up about like we gotta save the world. Man, that's good. I'm just gonna finish off by saying thank you to everyone that's been listening uh thus far into the second season of the Enlightened Dirtbags. Uh I just wanna do a quick sort of anonymous shout out. Um I received a message from one of our listeners and he actually bought No Domain, the John McAfee book. And uh, he gifted it to his father just based off of listening to our, our episode. Oh, cool, man. Maybe that'll give you more energy for more of your rants and more upcoming episodes. Oh, 100%. I'm best found on Instagram, just at Jonah Condro. Keep letting me know what you think of this podcast. And if you've read these books or if you've got any suggestions for season three. Yeah, and I'm super stoked to hear about that feedback. Like, man, it makes me so happy when people reach out and they're like, oh, man, like I read this book too or I listened to this episode or, you know, like it just gets me pumped up. Like I don't even need you to reach out and say like, hey, good job, you know, like you don't even need to give us feedback on like how we did. Just give us feedback on the books. And 
you know, recommend another, another great book. And I got more homework for you guys. I want you to send in a picture of your favorite book cover. Because for me, I know they say never judge a book by its cover, but 100% as far as books are concerned, I for sure do. There's been some cool books that I've found that I just like was walking through the bookstore and I'm like, oh, that cover looks cool. If anything, it's going to be great on the shelf. Maybe one day I'll read it and it'll be good. So send us in a cool picture of your favorite book cover and let us know how the book was. Maybe it was terrible and now it's just art. I am enlightened underscore dirtbag on Instagram. You know, if you want to follow mine and Jonah's personal lives, see what we're like outside of, uh, you know, this uh, ridiculous rambling. Or you can check us out on Enlightened Dirtbags podcast on Instagram as well. And that is podcast specific Instagram. It's the feed will only be clips from the episode. We've started filming little bits while we're recording just to do some promo stuff. It'll be us talking about what's coming up next or new information we've gained about previous books since we've done the recording. And uh, yeah, give us a follow. Give us some feedback about books. Give us some book suggestions. And uh, like Jonah said... We're looking for a theme and books for season three. Uh, we've really been enjoying this one so far, and uh, we're we're ready to keep the train on rolling. So uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Wait, what are we reading next? <laughs> I even looked at that, but my phone died. We're reading Marching Powder. Now, we talked about this one in uh, the preface episode, and I actually found this. This was our like key transition book because I found this in a motorcycle movie, right? And it brought us perfectly from season one's motorcycle theme into crime and conspiracy of season two. And this is a wild one, man. Like a journalist essentially smuggles himself into one of the most dangerous prisons in the world <laughs> and lives there for three months writing about it. It's wild, man. Like I'm I haven't read it yet. I've read the synopsis and I've and I've read you know, some bits of people talking about it. I think it's going to be cool as hell. And I found this on a motorcycle movie years ago, and I've been really eager to read it. So I'm I'm really pumped that the first experience is going to be on the podcast. Nice. Are we like actually done now? <laughs> but wait, there's more. Uh, yeah, I think that's it, dude. I'm good to go. This has been a, I really enjoyed this episode. You know, I'm thankful for everyone that tuned in and uh, I'm excited to do the next one. Hopefully you'll follow along.